Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead this hour, we'll visit with the outgoing Congressman Rodney Davis. The Republican lost a primary challenge in the spring, what he has to say now about the direction of his party. A lawsuit's been filed to overturn an Illinois ban on guns aboard public transportation. We'll hear from a couple who are making a bus their home. We'll also find out why the demand for adult education is up. And we remember the Heron Massacre. 2022 marked 100 years since it occurred in southern Illinois. We've had enough years pass by. People realize what happened was wrong. But it was definitely an era where the respect for human life was not what it should have been. That's all coming up on Statewide. Stay with us. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Enrollment fell hard at most community colleges during the pandemic. At schools like Wabanzi Community College, it's starting to come back up. But one of their programs roared back. Enrollment in adult education more than doubled this fall. Peter Medlin has more on what adult education is and why the demand for it is so high. Winnie wants to be a nurse. It's been her dream since way before she moved to the U.S. from her home country of Cameroon last year. Cameroon's a nation in West Central Africa, just south of Nigeria. She joined her husband in a new country with a new language she didn't speak. And on top of all of that, she was pregnant and had complications. So my pregnancy was not easy. So my baby has three months now. And I said I can begin to study English now. Winnie, like a majority of people from Cameroon, primarily speak French. And if she wants to be a nurse here in the U.S., she's probably going to need to speak English. That's why she enrolled in the free adult education program at Obanzi Community College. She's been in this English conversation class for only three weeks. A long conversation is not easy for me. I try, but, but I'm here to learn. She studied English a little bit in school, but after only studying here for a few weeks, her English is getting better really quickly. Wabanzi's adult education program consists of two distinct services, high school equivalency or, for someone like Winnie, English language acquisition. Adam Schauer is the dean for adult and workforce education who heads up the program. He says they're already about to surpass numbers from last year. We're currently serving 1,087 students before we're even halfway through the fiscal year. And so that number should exceed pre-COVID numbers by quite a bit. Nearly 75% of their students are looking for English language training. And Shower says they serve students speaking more than 45 native languages. They have young students and older folks who are lawyers, doctors, even a former university president. At the end of the day, he sees the programs as workforce development. People like Winnie come to get their high school equivalency or improve their English skills so they can get better workforce opportunities. And he thinks there are a few reasons for the recent enrollment rebounds. One is pent-up demand from the pandemic. School schedules have normalized and parents can re-engage their education. Individuals that are here that are pursuing their high school equivalency with us and completing their GED, their children are now 75% more likely to graduate from high school. Shower says they want to make it easier for adults, so that means offering plenty of night classes and sometimes on-site courses with community business partners. They're getting paid to be there by the employer. They're learning English in their workplace during their work hours. They're building a strong workforce, and the student now has more work-life balance. Many of the students have families, and the program requires them to be in class for six hours a week, with some of them taking 12 hours worth of classes. 
When they enter the program, students take a placement test so they know which areas they need help in. For high school equivalency, maybe they need more science and math and will get placed in those classes. The courses usually run for eight weeks and then they reevaluate. One of the other reasons for the enrollment boost? They're seeing a large influx of refugees from places like Myanmar and Ukraine. Shower says they've been working closely with local resettlement groups to assist those students. And just before the pandemic, Wubanzi rebuilt their adult education curriculum. And a big part of that was the need for digital literacy and civics. We've embedded civics components across the board to gain better understanding of what is a rental agreement, insurance, accessing health care. Back in the English language conversation class, students are working on a group project. Angel from Venezuela is confused about the word choir. Why is it pronounced like that? Shouldn't there be a W or something if you're going to say it like that? It's a fair point, and he talks about it with his classmates who are from Mexico, Ukraine, and Bolivia. Fabian just moved to Illinois from Bolivia a few months ago. He's 19 and hopes one day to direct movies. He loves surreal science fiction films. And this class has been really helpful for him, not just to learn English to help his education and his volunteer work, but to connect with people from across the globe. You can meet, meet up with other persons from other countries, mm -hmm. not just your country, not just uh, here, if not from Africa, from France, from many countries. So it's, it's a place where you can uh, meet with other persons, with other cultures. The program is free for students, and it's funded by a state grant from the Illinois Community College Board. Shower says funding has been pretty flat for the past few years, but with adult education and workforce training in such high demand, he hopes they get the opportunity to expand. I'm Peter Mudlin. Rodney Davis is set to leave office after a decade of representing central Illinois in Congress. The Taylorville Republican lost in the Republican primary to fellow incumbent Mary Miller. One of Davis's final acts in Congress was to help pass the Respect for Marriage Act. That's a bill that formalizes same-sex marriage protections. Davis told Eric Stock why he supported the measure that a vast majority of Republicans opposed. The legislation, while it wasn't perfect, uh, addressed not just uh, same-sex marriage, but also interracial marriage. Um, you know, it's something when you look at the laws of each state that have been put in place. And I'm, I've always been somebody who really leans towards states' rights on, on a wide variety of issues. I just didn't think it was fair that couples were told that they could legally be married in many states across the nation and to have the possibility of that being taken away if a court decided to rule differently. I just didn't think it was right. Do you think there was a parallel to the debate about uh, the abortion issue? There have been attempts to sort of nationalize that after the Roe versus Wade uh, ruling was struck down. A lot of states are doing this on their own, and half the country's gone one way, the other half's gone the other. I, I don't think it's an accurate comparison to talk about Roe v. Wade versus same-sex and interracial marriage, but I, because I have different viewpoints on, on abortion, and I've laid those viewpoints out pretty pretty affirmatively over the last 10 years that I've been in Congress. Do you suspect that if there is a way to sort of codify this, and it looked like the discussion came out of the fact that uh, this this court ruling that struck down Roe v. Wade, that there could be an effort to, to make it a national uh, abortion, either restriction or a national right to an abortion? Do you, do you foresee that? No, because when you talk about the Dobbs decision, it was a decision to move the decision-making and the authority back to the states. And unfortunately, it's done nothing to decrease the amount of abortions 
that are being that are being done in our home state of Illinois. And we've seen Democrats in Springfield uh, even profess to support killing a baby up until the minute it's born. Uh, that to me is tragic. What do you make of your primary result, losing to another incumbent in Mary Miller who ran to the right against you? Well, one thing I found is when you win a district that was drawn to elect a Democrat 10 years ago, and you're able to win it not just once, but five times, and you do it based upon fulfilling your promise of being bipartisan, fulfilling your promise of, of governing, that those don't sell as well in a district that was drawn by Democrats to be one of the most Republican districts in the nation. It was an R plus 22 district. And in the end, I got to give the former president and his team a lot of credit. They came in the last weekend. They changed the turnout model that we didn't expect. We saw low turnout in the areas where I ran strong and high turnout in the areas where I didn't. And that you know, surprised us. It surprised us on election night. But in the end, elections are are full of surprises on a regular basis. And while I was surprised, I did what you should do. I picked up the phone, called my opponent, conceded the election, went out and started looking ahead to what's next. Is there anything that you would have done differently? You can always second guess yourself and you can beat yourself up doing so. But in the end, I trusted the team that I had, trusted the folks that were working on my behalf. We spent ungodly amounts of money that were raised, uh, more so in the primary than I did, I think, my entire primary and general election cycle when I was a top Democrat target in 2020. So the resources were there. But just in the end, in the end, uh, there were a lot of factors. Uh, one particular factor being the case that I don't think a lot of Illinoisans were used to voting in June. And we saw that with historic low turnout. Where do you think the uh, Republican Party goes from here? Uh, Republicans did win the House, not by as many as they had expected. And it seemed like the moderate candidates uh, generally fared better, at least in the general election. Well, candidate quality matters in the general election. You know, I'm somebody who's been used to having tough fights in the general election and, frankly, even in primaries before. Uh, but in the end, uh, the voters who vote in a general election are much different than the voters who just vote in the pres in the primary process. You asked a couple of questions there, and I'm going to take it in, in two parts. First, you said, what is the future of the Republican Party? Well, here in Illinois, um, the future's got to be anywhere but where we are right now. we got to go up. And I think we lost a golden opportunity to win many statewide seats or numerous statewide seats and seats in the Illinois General Assembly because candidate quality matters. And Darren Bailey was an abject failure as a candidate for governor. He failed to raise the resources. He failed to uh, he failed to rally Republican support in areas of Illinois that are riddled with crime, that are riddled with problems with the current Democrats being in charge. But he was clearly not able to convince enough people in Illinois that he was the right alternative. As we continue on Sound Ideas with Congressman Ronnie Davis. So what do you see as your legacy in Congress as your 10 years comes to a close? Well, I'm somebody who uh, came to Congress promising to be a very bipartisan member. And the record and the rankings of where I'm at on a bipartisan basis clearly show that. Um, I came to Congress promising to help craft farm bills that are going to help put Illinois agriculture and our agri-producers on a on a, a footing that allows them to succeed. We've done that not just once, but twice. 
I promise to get our transportation reauthorization processes back in place. And I did that. And I also promised to address student debt as somebody who represented four public universities, four private universities, numerous community college districts. I realized early on student debt was a major issue. I passed a, I passed language that allows for every private employer in this country and public employee, employer for that matter to be incentivized to help their employees pay down student debt. And unfortunately, all we hear from Washington right now when it comes to student debt is that somehow debt's going to be forgiven. I've said all along, I think that's BS. And not one single dollar of debt forgiveness has gone to anyone with student debt. It's just a bunch of BS rhetoric coming from Democrats in Washington right now. So what are you going to do next? I'll, I'll figure it out. I haven't, uh, haven't identified everything as of yet. That's outgoing Republican Congressman Rodney Davis with Eric Stock. Davis says he'll never say never to another run for public office in the future. A lawsuit filed in Illinois seeks to overturn a ban on carrying guns aboard public transportation. I spoke with reporter Nika Schoonover about the legal arguments on both sides. So in this lawsuit, who are the people that have brought this? The lawsuit was brought by David Segal, who is the attorney on behalf of four individuals who assert that they have the constitutional right to carry guns on public transportation and want the law to be reversed. And it is brought against Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul and four county state's attorneys. And Raoul has responded. So can you fill us in on where this lawsuit stands at this point? Raul and the other four county state's attorneys have all given responses. However, the lawsuit itself is still pending. And what's Raul's response primarily been? It's that they aren't subject to any relief because they are not actually facing the consequences of not obeying this law. They are kind of preemptively asking for it to be reversed, but they have not actually broken it or are facing any current consequences of breaking the law. So Raul's argument is basically that they can't get relief. And Illinois is somewhat of a rare exception, right, when it comes to these types of bans on public transportation, when it comes to guns on on public transit? I wouldn't say rare. They are one of six states that have some type of firearm ban on public transportation. There are various other bans of firearms in public spaces, but in terms of public transportation specifically, that is not across the board. And there's a term that's called, what, sensitive locations? Explain what that is and how does that come into play in this lawsuit? Yeah, sensitive locations apply to certain public areas in which you're not allowed to carry a firearm, even if you are otherwise legally permitted to do so. This usually involves schools, worship houses, um, government buildings. And although that right to carry a gun in certain areas has been more or less, um, that right has been affirmed, these places are kind of the exception in which the government can still regulate the public carrying of a firearm. There was a recent Supreme Court decision that also may play into this. Can you fill us in on that? So the Supreme Court case, it's known as the Bruin case, it was about a New York law which established that a person needs to show special need in order to carry their gun um, for self-defense. And Bruin basically said that that was unconstitutional because there is a historic and fundamental right to be able to defend yourself by carrying a firearm. And with this affirmation that you are allowed to carry a gun in public spaces, the question since has really become, okay, where is that line? 
how broad are we painting sensitive locations? Um, where can we draw the boundary now that it has been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court that you can actually have your gun in public? And the idea of a school or a church, places like that being considered sensitive locations is understandable. They are a little bit different, though, than riding on public transportation. You could be riding at night. You could you're certainly quite often by yourself. So people might feel more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and that is the argument for people on the uh, gun rights side is that it provides another level of protection for people on public transit, especially, you know, if they're trying to get from point A to point B, having that extra level of protection. But there's also, you know, the other side of the argument, in particular, Esther Sanchez Gomez from the Giffords Law Center, she kind of divides what a sensitive location is into three categories, the activities that are being done there, the type of people who are there, and the density of a crowd. So she says that that public transportation applies to those second two categories of the type of people and the density of the crowd, because you really get, there's children on any type of public transit, there are families. And then with that, especially during rush hour, you also get just massive crowds of people where it qualifies as a sensitive location. That's reporter Nika Schoonover. Her report examines a lawsuit challenging Illinois' ban on guns aboard public transportation. Still to come on Statewide, this year marked the 100th anniversary of a dark chapter in this Southern past Illinois year we history. Back at a dark we'll chapter more in, in Illinois history. And this one hit close to home. In fact, my hometown. 2022 marked the 100th anniversary of what's known as the Heron Massacre. As the name suggests, it happened in Heron, a small southern Illinois town in Williamson County, at a strip mine. And when the events unfolded, many were dead, including nearly two dozen strike breakers. Despite witnesses, no one was convicted. The town, with its name attached to the incident, has struggled for decades to come to grips with one of the deadliest events in labor history, one that shocked the country. John Musgrave is a Southern Illinois author and historian, and he's researched the Heron Massacre. He talked with us about what took place. Well, when the strike started, this coal mine was fairly new, and they asked for permission to keep working, because before they could strip out the coal, they had to strip out the 50, 60 feet or more of dirt that was on top of it. And technically, that wasn't coal mining. That was just, that was earth moving. Um, so they got permission to do that. Then they got down to the, the seam of coal. Then they started digging out the coal, but piling it up. That was a little iffy. Then they wanted to actually load the coal in coal cars from the, the railroad. When they started getting to this point, the union said no. So that's when it became a lockout. Uh, they fired the union coal miners who had still been working while all of their other brethren had been on strike. Then they brought in replacement workers, mostly from Chicago, and guards out of Chicago. But, John, the violence did not happen immediately. It was when they started getting ready to load coal and start shipping coal out that would have broken the strike nationwide. The pressure was on. They needed, the coal operators needed to resolve the strike. The union wanted to hold out as long as they could to get the best deal. To have some little dinky strip mine screw it up for everybody else was, was too much. Plus you had a mine operator who was, the boss was out, was up in Chicago or, or Indiana or someplace, and he was not ready to deal. 
local coal miners knew what was happening out in West Virginia uh, with Matt Wan and White Mountain and um, the losses that the union suffered out there. They had seen what companies had done when they brought in replacement workers and fired on uh, tent encampments of union families out in Colorado and Wyoming. There was an incident just nine months earlier uh, at Rosaclair here in the southernmost part of the state at the Floresbar Mines where they had locked out the union miners. The union miners were living in tent cities. The, one of the organizers was shot to death on the streets of Rosaclair, and there was some type of riot. And we don't know what because the local newspaper was covering everything up. So these men who were brought in to work the mine while this strike was taking place, who you know, tell us about those folks. Who were they? They were they're mostly people from Chicago. They were members of a union. This is where it gets interesting. Now the UMWA didn't consider it a real union, but there was like the steam shovel operators. So and again, they're not coal miners like what you think of coal miners who are underground using a pick. They're guys operating a big steam shovel. It's like a different industry as far as they're concerned, even though it's the same product. But a lot of them claimed they came down without knowing what was going on. Surely they had to know there was a national strike going on. But again, if you're in the city, maybe you're not paying that much attention compared to if you're living in a county that has a bunch of coal mines. The other thing is when they got down here and they found out what was going on, the company wouldn't let them leave. Some of the survivors had choice words for the uh, company as much as the union. The guards were brought in. They were part of a detective agency, that the Hargrave Detective Agency, which that was one of their things, was to provide security at industrial sites. And I think there's always been some question about what lit the match there, what led to all of the violence, but take us back to that day. Well, what we consider the Heron Massacre takes place on Thursday, June 22nd. The shooting actually started on Wednesday the 21st, and it's not clear who started shooting. There were two, actually three separate incidents. On the highway from Marion to Carbondale, the UMWA staged an ambush down in the bottoms in what's now Crab Orchard Lake, and they ambushed a big truck coming that included more replacement workers and our guards. The driver was struck by a bullet, and he actually would be the last person to die from the Heron Massacre. He held on for months. Uh, others in the truck were wounded. The next thing that took place was the Union targeted the railroad engine that was hauling some empty rail cars into the coal mine. That locomotive engineer, he gets stuck in the mine for safety. At some point, someone inside the mine started using a high-powered rifle, started shooting towards the miners who were maybe across the field um, half mile away or something. A couple of miners get hit, shot that day. Uh, I think one dies, one dies within a day or two. We end up with uh, two or three of the 22 deaths were union miners locally. The remaining 19 or 20 are replacement workers or guards. So once they start shooting, the union starts raiding every hardware store. They try to raid the American Legion, trying to get the American Legion's guns at that point, uh, which they didn't get. But they got a lot of other guns. 
and they were funneling those to the miners who were outside the mine, who were shooting towards the mine. Um, and that lasts all day, all night. There is a story that they may have dropped bombs, dynamite from a, uh, a plane flying overhead. By the morning, first light, people inside are ready to surrender. They surrender to whatever union official is at their gate at that point. And I'm guessing they likely thought they would be allowed to get out of the area, but that wasn't what happened? The 40 or so people left are lined up two by two with uh, the mine manager and the locomotive engineer in front with the assistant manager and the mine bookkeeper. They're in the second row, and then there'll be workers behind. So it's very much like you would line up uh, POWs during the war, and a lot of people at this point on both sides are war veterans from World War One. They march down the, the tracks about an eighth of a mile, then they turn on a county road about a half mile till they get to a place called Crenshaw Crossing, a little, little rural community with a couple stores and an electric railroad that goes through it that connects the different towns and the coal mines. Whoever they surrendered to went into a store because they were the only one with a telephone to call the UMWA subdistrict office to find out where the trucks were at. Because the part of the agreement was they would they would surrender, the union would take them to the train station and they could get out of Dodge. We don't know exactly what happened, but assuming this guy had been up for probably 36 hours, 24, 36 at this point, either stays in the store or he's not with the group as they go west. While he's in the store, there's a small mob that forms. One of them, Otis Clark, uh, says, we need to eliminate the breed, referring to the replacement workers. Somebody else in the crowd says, you can't do that. You know, where's your humanity? And he wins at that point. Nothing happens to him. But Otis takes charge and starts marching the people that surrendered down the road. They get about another half mile, three quarters of a mile. He and another guy takes the mine manager behind a farmhouse and, and executes him by shooting them in the head. His wife's there with the car, and then they drive off. We don't know who's in charge at this point, but they keep moving west down the road to what's now Energy, Illinois. And on the outskirts of Energy, uh, there is a powder plant where they make black powder on the south side of the road. There is a power plant uh, for the electric railroad on the north side. They get ready to shoot them there in the, in the road, and there's women and children present, and the sub-district vice president of UMWA arrives at this point by car and tells them, don't be a fool, take him out in the woods. So they take him to the woods behind the power plant, line him up along a barbed wire fence, and do a countdown, and they start firing. Now, the locomotive engineer, since he's the highest-ranking person, he's on the end, and when it gets to two, he takes off. He survives. Maybe half the people either are missed or just barely wounded, and they start running. Some of these people, most of the victims were found there along the barbed wire fence. Some are found in the woods. We know one guy was chased into the south, just south of Heron, and was hung in the woods. Six people were recaptured in Heron. They were marched up 13th Street uh, to a school. Then they marched out a county road to the city cemetery. And then that's where... Each one was shot and had their throat slit. Five of them were killed at that point. Six ones survived and actually testified during the trials. 
This received a lot of attention, not just in southern Illinois, not just in the state of Illinois, but across the country, right? By this point, big city reporters who had heard about the stuff on Wednesday, they had arrived in Heron by Thursday morning. They followed the crowds out to the cemetery, and they actually witnessed these last murders. And some of those reporters testified during the trial. In the end, 22 people are dead. News went out immediately. It was condemned nationwide. Members of Congress talked about it. The president talked about it. Illinois State Chamber of Commerce led the uh, call trying to get prosecutions made. When the grand jury met, the regular grand jury met later that summer, uh, their report was it was the fault of the coal company. The attorney general led the charge to get the work for the state's attorney to get a, a special grand jury called. Uh, they spent most of August investigating, and they came out with the first indictments by Labor Day weekend. 80 or 90 people total were indicted. Uh, and then we had two trials later that year in the fall uh, with six or seven people indicted each time or actually tried at once. Everybody was acquitted. The stories were from the time, which had been confirmed by various sources over the years, that it looked like they spent $35,000 just bribing the 12 members of the jury. And they may have also had the judge and the state's attorney. They covered their bases. They even uh, kidnapped witnesses and took them to St. Louis and put them up in a hotel to keep them from testifying. The union spent probably seven, dollars $800,000 minimum on the trial. They assigned uh, every minor $1 a month to help cover the trial expenses for the statewide. And then when the trials got done, they ended up having to buy the coal company because of all the claims the company had against the union. Is it shocking to you that nobody was found guilty when you look back at it? The, the union created alibis. I mean, all these people, you know, they brought in witnesses who said, oh, well, I was behind them in line at the bank. It's not believable. Um, but they came up with enough excuses. And, and they had done this before. We had the Carnival riots in 1899, the, uh, the trials in 1900, and I'm finding accounts where they bought train tickets for a father and son who were witnesses, and, and one of the relatives of one of the indicted took them to Missouri when they were supposed to be at the trial. They had this practice. I think they had seen what companies had done to the union in Appalachia and out west because the mines in Illinois had been organized a generation longer, uh, Illinois was one of the best places to work if you're going to be a coal miner because you're going to make the highest pay. Everybody thought they could get away with it. They thought they had to do it because the, if they found them guilty, it would be worse. It doesn't make sense looking back, but I can see how they justified it because they justified a lot of things. Now, John, despite this being a century ago, uh, there is a more recent chapter to this story. It was back in the news just a few years ago, and can you fill us in on that? Earlier this century, uh, we had a local researcher wonder where these men were buried in the cemetery at Heron, because records showed, I think there were 16 buried. One was disinterred by the family and taken out, so there still should be 15 of these victims at the Heron City Cemetery but they were not marked. So he started an effort trying to figure out where they were at. Um, and a lot of research 
Scott Duty was the guy's name. He was finding stuff in records that had been forgotten. He brought in uh, a professor who did uh, knew how to use the ground penetrating radar, trying to determine where some of these bodies were. And they they did finally identify what was the pauper cemetery section back in the in the 1920s and identify where it was at. Shamefully, um, some of these lots in that era area had been sold to families since then, um, and they were finding some. They were opening graves and finding someone was already buried there. They were able, I think, get that straightened out. But eventually, they were able to identify it. They weren't allowed to disinter where they think the victims were to confirm for certain, but they're definitely within the right block. Uh, so that's where they end up get, finally getting a marker. And having grown up there, as I mentioned, it was a black mark on the city, and it was something that a lot of people didn't want to talk about. It wasn't talked about all that much. For some, they were more than content to put this behind them, and, of course, some had relatives who participated in the Heron Massacre. A century on, what is the legacy of this event? This was the start. This we call, If we call this the Mine War, this was immediately followed by the Klan War and the Gang War. And so from 22 to 27, we had over 70 murders, uh, mostly in Williamson County, some in the surrounding counties, from this outbreak of violence that was far beyond what normally would happen in an area. This was the type of stuff that got nationwide coverage. Charlie Berger was one of our gangsters that developed during this time. Uh, I've seen references to Al Capone in 1927 as the Charlie Berger of Chicago. This had nationwide implications. I think the county paid for it a little bit. We lost 80% of our coal mining jobs uh, during the 20s. Part of that was due to the black mark that we received for this. Part of it was also just due to increased productivity and mechanization. But like here in Williamson County, we lost population for the next four decades. Uh, It wasn't until 2000 that we finally surpassed our 1920 population. So it's been part of it. I don't think in terms of the people, we've had enough years pass by, people realize what happened was wrong. But it was definitely an era where the respect for human life was not what it should have been. John Musgrave is a Southern Illinois author and historian, and he spoke with us about the Heron Massacre, the community over the summer on the 100th anniversary of the event held a ceremony at the site where many of the victims are buried. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay with us. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. An Aurora native started her writing journey in the fourth grade. It's a voyage that took her across the world, and on the way, she commissioned others to join her. Yvonne Booz tells us more. Ingrid Went is a poet, editor, and educator. She wrote her first poem at Bardwell Elementary. I remember it because I hated it. I I was so embarrassed because it was so stupid. And I knew it was stupid, but I thought it had to rhyme. And I remember the first stanza. I have a fourth grade teacher who's very pretty, too. That's where she says she got stuck. She pondered, trying to figure out what word rhymed with two. It isn't any wonder that the boys all say woo-woo. Wynn shares that she thought all poems needed to rhyme. She says she started to resent rhyme and she stopped writing for a while. 
She learned later that she thought Ryan was needed because when she was in her cradle, her mother read Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses to her. I loved the rhythms of, of poetry. They were in me from the very beginning. Growing up in Aurora, I was privileged, very privileged to be given piano lessons at age six. So the music of poetry was very deep in me. But the next poem she wrote wasn't until her sophomore year in high school. And this is when she learned that poetry didn't have to rhyme. She penned a piece about a fixture in her hometown. I love the Fox River. I miss the Fox River. Anyway, um, and, and so this, the world is in a terrible state and an angel comes down and talks to this person walking alone by the river in the fog. She left the Fox River and moved to Iowa for college. There she majored in English with the intent of being a short story author. But after she graduated, she wasn't sure what she wanted to do. I learned that MFA students, I got a master's degree in creative writing, that they went into teaching. So I started looking for a teaching job just as something to do. I didn't know that I could go to a big city and maybe start working for a publishing house. Or... But she's worked in many big cities, teaching children and other teachers about poetry. Went work even landed her in Germany, but Eugene, Oregon became her new home. Her first teaching job was as a visiting professor at California State University, Fresno. After three years, she says she was ready for something else. I realized I needed more life experience to really be a good professor. And besides, by that time I was married, was pregnant. It was a perfect time to, to stop for a while and take a break from academia. She spent three more years taking care of her family. Then in 1974, she learned about poets in schools. This program was created by the Poetry Society. It teaches children how to write poetry and instructors how to teach the craft. Went got the job. She says she loved this new position. But I did get to teach children poetry that didn't necessarily rhyme, open those eyes, and more importantly, let them know that they themselves can be creative and that all of them can be poets. Then the school budget in the town that she lived in changed and art funding was cut. Went says she was forced to travel further to do this work. This excursion birthed Went's book, Starting with the Little Things, after she started speaking and doing teacher workshops. Not only did Went ride the poetry wave outside of her house, but she also had a special someone who joined her on the ride at home. Her husband, Ralph Salisbury. He was also a poet. The two were married for 48 years before he died. Wynn says he was the first to read her poems. We were soulmates. <laughs> we, were, we were opposites in so many ways, but we saw the world the same way. Went has authored several books and received numerous accolades, but there is something that she is very proud of. One of the highlights of my life was getting an invitation to go back to Bardwell School to um, teach fourth grade classes. And that's when I wrote my very first poem that I can remember was in Bardwell School in the fourth grade. In addition to her writing, Wynn says she pours an equal amount of effort into her music. She sings in a choir and recently did so at Carnegie Hall. After all of her travels, Wynn says she would love to come back home and do more work in Aurora Schools, the place where her journey began. I'm Yvonne Booz. A Peoria couple is looking to hit the road soon in their 77-passenger school bus that has been renovated to serve as their tiny home on wheels. Jody Holtz reports. 
Two 20-somethings are making their dream a reality by converting a school bus into a fully functioning tiny home, and they thought Peoria would be the perfect place to do it. I recently visited with Levi and Rachel Plaus, the proud owners of a 77-passenger 2001 Freightliner FS65 school bus, which now sports the name of Bustav. Rachel and Levi had previously lived in Colorado for the past three years. Although they loved the state, it was getting more and more expensive. And after the pandemic hit, they realized they were paying all this money for rent, but couldn't really go out and do much of anything. Thus, the idea of a bus was born. When we first got married, we talked about buying a van and throwing a mattress in it and just going for a couple of months and tour in the U.S. to see what there was to see. Yeah. And this kind of takes that and puts it in a whole new level. It was a very fast process. He called me up and said, I found a bus, but we have to buy it now. Like, I'm going to look at it. <laughs> And we have to make a decision in 24 hours. And I originally wanted to wait because, like we said, he hyperfixates on a project and then we'll yeah. jump from one project to another. And I said, let's just give it some time <laughs> before we make this big decision. And um, said, we're going to go all in and uh, let's do it. And we drove, he drove it and I drove the car behind him with my sister-in-law mm -hmm. and uh, on a Friday. And we stayed here Saturday and we turned around and drove back to Denver on Sunday. The couple bought the bus for $5,000. The choice to bring Bustav to Peoria was based on the fact that both Levi and Rachel's families live here. Once they were able to finish their lease in Colorado, it was time to get to work. It was now March of 2021 and the first thing on the to-do list was demolition. Ripping out all of the interior wall panels and ceiling panels and the old rubberized floor matting and then the plywood underneath that and finding that the whole floor of the bus was all covered in rust. Mm. And so then we had to remediate all that, clean it off, wire brush the entire bus. <laughs> a lot of square footage for a wire brush. <laughs> and then, you know, seal that with some Rust-Oleum rust converter. And then raising the roof was a big project too. The top of the bus had to be cut in half in order to raise the roof to give the couple more headspace. But this was only one of the many projects Levi and Rachel had to conquer. The entire bus is custom designed for them and filled with personal touches from the colors inside to the height of the countertops in the kitchen to the maple cabinet in the bathroom built from the lumber of the tree Levi grew up climbing as a child. This is going to be a booth slash couch. So the tabletop will be here and it'll drop down. There'll be cushions on top. We both work from home, mm -hmm. so I'm going to work here and then his desk will be here. Levi is a plumber by trade, and needless to say, the design of the bathroom is quite impressive. So the shower in particular, I've designed so that there is a valve underneath the floor that controls where the water goes. It'll either send it to the gray tank for the wastewater, or it'll send it back through a filtration system, clean the water, and then reheat it, and then back through the shower head, all without sending it back to the water tanks, so you don't have grayer water <laughs> in with your drinking water. Not only does the bus sport a state-of-the-art water filtration system, but the majority of the bus is also powered off of solar panels. And as far as heat goes, Levi has set up an extensive hydronic in-floor heat system. I have five different zones for 230 square feet. Two of them kind of keep the 
external compartments on the bus warmer so that you can charge lithium-ion batteries and so that the gray tank doesn't freeze and any of the plumbing in there burst. Uh, and then I have three separate zones for inside the bus, kind of a front, middle, and rear, because the flooring's at different heights. It'll allow more heat to get through. I wanted to be able to control that independently mm -hmm. and keep the bus at a fairly consistent temperature. Levi notes that this system provides him and Rachel the flexibility to stay in the cold. And as an avid skier himself, that's important and something that wouldn't be as sustainable in something like an RV. Another key feature of Bustav is its home automation system, which runs off a little Raspberry Pi and allows Rachel and Levi to control everything from their phones or Apple Watch. This includes all the lights and the pumps to run the heating system. That's the, uh... <laughs> you kill your audio. There. What is that? Oh no, that, that was great. Is, uh, motorized ball valves that are controlling the in-floor heating. So there are oh. these little temperature sensors throughout the bus that'll sense what temperature everything's getting, and it'll automatically kick on. Right? It'll automatically kick on when it hits a specific temperature. When we're actually living on the bus, we'll be able to check on the temperature in the bus and make sure the cats are doing okay when they're in there. And we can make sure that we're not running down the batteries or if it's really cloudy to see how much solar we're actually getting right from our phones. Their two cats, Finn and Tonks, will be joining them for what is sure to be the time of their cat lives. With so many features and amenities going into the bus, it was important that Rachel and Levi had the space, resources, and time to properly work on it. That's where River City Labs in Peoria comes in. But we heard about it, we just joined about a month ago. But it's kind of opened up a whole new world of, because we don't have any storage at his parents' house. There's really nowhere for us to keep anything that we're working on. Everything we're working on has to stay in the bus. So, it, you know, 230-ish square feet gets really crowded. Mm -hmm. So having a space that not only we could work, we could kind of um, take stuff out of the bus when we're working on it, and when it's getting colder, like work inside on stuff instead of having to do everything in the bus has been really helpful. Although River City Labs has expedited the project, converting the bus is still taking much longer than Rachel and Levi initially expected. We want this to be a home that we live in for several years. And after that, the goal is to eventually find a piece of land that we love in a place that we want to live in forever. Yeah, forever. But, um, <laughs> and park the bus and live in it and build a new house and use it eventually one day as a, as a guest house. For now, Rachel and Levi are living in a apartment in Peoria on a month-to-month -month lease and plan to move into the bus as soon as it's done. And since they hope to live in the bus for several years, they're also hoping that they will eventually make the money back that they put into it. But at this point, they're all in. We've put a lot of money into it. Um, I think we chose not a great time to do it because everything's so expensive right now. And so we have consistently put more money into it than we thought we were going to. And at this point, if we gave up on it, we would lose a lot of money. And we've been dreaming about it for so long. We've formed this like emotional attachment to it in a way, like we've named it, his name's Bustav. <laughs> Trying to like give him up, like selling him to someone else would feel like giving up like a pet or someone. Both Levi and Rachel continue to work full time and work on the bus in almost all of their spare time. They have also documented their journey converting the bus thus far on their social media accounts, which go by the name Just Between Bus. Rachel says she wanted to show 
other people who might be interested in tackling a similar project how her and Levi accomplished it. And they both have some tips to share. Double your budget in both money and time. Know that it's going to take a lot more time and a lot more money than you think it will. If you want to live like you're at home, it's going to take a lot. Um, if you just want to throw a mattress in, that's easy. And you can do that. I know that there's a lot of people who do this lifestyle where they, they're not looking for a forever home or for a really long-term place to live, but more of just a way to travel. I think for me, it's, it's do a lot of research, try to get past the idea that it's never going to be 100% perfect because it's a school bus. Yeah, and just have fun with it. I think that our ability to learn so many things that we've, we've taken welding and sewing and um, we've met a lot of really cool people just the experience has been really awesome so far. There's a really strong community out there of people who've done this and usually people are pretty helpful and pretty open to helping out where mm -hmm. they can, giving advice, giving knowledge. It's kind of a built-in community of friends. You already have something in common and you already have like a similar spirit because of the way that you want to live. We've already met, we know a couple that are doing a van here in the Peoria area and we met them and uh, we immediately hit it off because you have something in common that no one else really wants to do. Once the bus is finished, all that's left is picking where to go. And that's the fun part. His little sister, we're very close to her. She lived with us for a little while in Colorado. And um, she recently got a job contracting at NASA in Houston. We would really like to go and visit her um, and see her. We're going to want to spend the majority of our time out west because there's a lot more public land out west that you can park the bus on for free. Um, there's uh, BLM land, which means that you can park on it for free and then stay on it for, was it two weeks? And then you only have to move it a mile. So we want to hit the East Coast first. I have family in Florida and um, we have friends in North Carolina where we grew up and See, and he has a ton of family in Pennsylvania. So we want to take the big East Coast tour and then, um, and then find our way out west. Rachel and Levi will be able to travel anywhere in the country, all thanks to their hard work, River City Labs, and of course, thanks to Boostop. <laughs> Jody Holtz with that report. We're out of time for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being with us. Join us next time and in the new year as we look forward to bringing you more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Meanwhile, you can find all of our episodes at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And you can find our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.